The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear, superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The California Water Commission has thrown a monkey wrench into the plans and budgets for two major proposed dams in California, the Sites Reservoir near Calusa and Temperance Flat near Fresno. We have the details. Governor Jerry Brown has taken a step back on the Delta Tunnels project. He's now proposing a one-tunnel system, for now anyway, but even that has a lot of obstacles in the way. Lack of winter rain in the valley, less snow in the the mountains that's refocused farmers attention to the possibility of another california drought we look at some of the latest strategies for growing crops with less water and we pay a visit to the calusa farm show all that crop reports and more on this week's ksde farm hour let's get started remember Proposition 1, don't you? You voted for it in 2014. The voters approved a $7.5 billion bond measure to pay for water recycling, treatment, and water storage. Part of the allure of voting yes on Prop 1 back in 2014 was it was going to be building dams and reservoirs. Well, backers of 11 different projects have come forward with applications for funding, including the Sites Reservoir, an hour north of Sacramento, and Temperance Flat Dam, northeast of Fresno, two of the largest reservoirs proposed in California in decades. However, the California Water Commission said, we cannot accept your application projects right now. Go and rewrite them and tell us why the public will benefit from these projects. This was a blindsided shot to the developers of these projects, and they're a little bit miffed at the reaction of the California Water Commission. Bill Bird, who's the executive director of the Sacramento County Farm Bureau, says if you're talking about public benefit, what about the obvious? The dams and reservoirs that make up both the state and federal water projects were built for one reason, and one reason only, and it was not to provide irrigation water for farms and ranches. That's always been a side benefit. Our system of dams, reservoirs, and levees were built to protect cities like Sacramento against catastrophic flooding. That is the main public benefit of a dam. It protects children and families. Without adequate flood protection, we've seen what has happened. You'll continue to see events like the Feather River Basin flood of 1986 that killed 13 people. Nearly a decade later, in 1997, 250 square miles in California flooded from an atmospheric rain event, killing two and injuring 50 more. Just last year, right about this time, half of Calusa County was under two to three feet of water. The town of Maxwell flooded because the canals overflowed. And by the way, these are the same canals that would have been used to carry excess water to fill sites reservoir. Had sites been in place last year, it's highly possible that Maxwell would have been spared. So for the California Water Commission to assign a project like sites reservoir with zero public benefit, the commission is essentially telling people that protecting families, children and communities from devastating floods carries absolutely no public benefit. That tells me that perhaps the commission needs to use a different set of priorities to score these projects, because in my opinion, and the opinion of the Farm Bureau protecting children and families is a pretty big deal. State Senator Jim Nielsen told the San Jose Mercury News that the public should be concerned that they voted for large new dams and reservoirs and that this is an effort to undermine the intent of the voters. And Byrd agrees with that assessment. Senator Nielsen was a part of the uh, team that helped craft the water bond in 2014. And it was very clear uh, through the negotiation process that $2.7 had been set aside 
for new water storage projects. We were quite in the open with that, and that was a bipartisan agree- agreement between um, Republicans and Democrats in both the state Senate and the state assembly. Nothing was hidden from public view, and it was also sold uh, to voters as a bipartisan a deal to provide additional water storage projects for California. So I think Senator Nielsen's right on the mark. Now, the story isn't over yet. The California Water Commission is still six months away from making its final decision. But the fact that all of these groups have to go back and rewrite their proposals has many wondering, wondering about any future hurdles involved in proving the dollar value of an improved fish population, public value and more. Yes, the farm economy has been struggling for at least three years, but... There have been various mitigating factors to that. Which could be why demand for USDA direct and guaranteed farm loans seems to be diminishing slightly. This from the man basically in charge of the USDA Farm Service Agency loan portfolio, Jim Redens. He says in fiscal year 2016, USDA obligated a record high $6.3 billion for new credit, and demand was so high, money actually ran out, and some loans had to be pushed into the next year. But even with... Some 2016 loans going into 2017, obligations for those loans went down from $6.3 billion down to $5.9 billion with loan money still left unused. Redens says there could be a couple of reasons for the slight fall off in loan demand, reasons going back to the 2016 crop year. Yields were very strong, which reduced some of the need for credit in 2017. The cattle market was a little better maybe than what folks had anticipated. So what about the loan demand in the first three and a half months of this new fiscal year 18? We're running at or slightly below the 2017 levels. One measure of the farm economy can be the number of producers having trouble paying back existing loans and going into delinquency. Redens says on that score for the last couple of years... The delinquency rates in both the direct and guaranteed programs have been basically flat. Delinquencies have been running about 5% for direct loans, just over 1% for guaranteed loans. Now, the people getting direct USDA loans have changed. Now, 10 years ago, only 25% of the Agriculture Department's direct loan money went to beginning farmers. Now it's around 60%. Of course, part of that increase was directed by Congress to put more direct loan resources into the hands of those who are just starting out in farming, and that has certainly happened. Redens says during the 2017 fiscal year... We provided roughly 4,200 beginning farmers with the opportunity to buy their first farm. Oftentimes, beginning farmers, when asked uh, in terms of obstacles, one of the biggest ones they have is access to land. And, of course, being able to buy some farmland may not totally alleviate the problem that they have, but it certainly uh, gets them a step in the right direction. And speaking of directions, um, USDA has uh, something called a compass. Yeah, a new publication, uh, your FSA Farm Loan Compass, that can help new farmers navigate through the loan process. Go online, search USDA Loan Compass. USDA Loan Compass. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Governor Jerry Brown and the Department of Water Resources has backtracked a bit on their Delta Tunnels proposal. Now the project will be divided into two stages. The first stage includes two intakes with a total capacity of 6,000 cubic feet per second, but just one tunnel, one intermediate forebay, and one pumping station. The Sacramento Bee reports that still with just a one-tunnel proposal, the cost will be something like $10 billion. But that still leaves a rather large shortfall of $4 billion. So far, water agencies have proposed to pay only about $6 billion of that project. And besides the monetary shortfall, there is still opposition. 
Critics of the project, including Delta landowners and many environmental groups, say even one tunnel would damage the Delta's fragile ecosystem. They have vowed to continue fighting the California water fix project in court, as well as in regulatory proceedings. Here's this week's California Crop Report. Winter forage crops such as wheat, barley, and other cereal grains and forage mixes continue to be planted where ground allowed. Recent rain benefited fields that were planted earlier in the season. The fields had signs of good growth. Most winter wheat has emerged and it's growing well. Alfalfa fields are being replanted with new rains and previously planted alfalfa is growing well. Pruning and brush shredding continues in stone fruit orchards and vineyards. Herbicides and dormant sprays were applied as conditions permitted. Persimmon harvest is ongoing. Some older, poorly producing orchards and vineyards were removed and prepped for replanting. Naval orange harvest is ongoing. Naval orange worm sanitation is ongoing as well. Pomelos were harvested. Olive growers continued to prune the groves. Pruning continues in the nut orchards. Some older orchards were pushed out and the ground was prepped for planting. Some almonds were given a final shake to drop mummies that the mild winter didn't remove. Early almond blooms were reported in the Paso Robles area. Fields were being prepared and planted with winter vegetable crops, but activities have been slowed due to wet soils. Lettuce continues to benefit from the recent damp weather and growth looks ideal. Strawberries are growing well. The fall carrots were a week away from harvest. Spring carrots had emerged and they're looking well. Beds continue to be prepared for tomatoes. Garlic stands were established and growing well. Weed control was complete on organic onions, while conventional onions continue to be irrigated. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture were reported to be primarily in fair to poor condition. Recent rainfall was beneficial, but more precipitation is needed for germination and growth of rangeland forage. Supplemental feeding of livestock is ongoing. Sheep are grazing on idle cropland, stubble fields, and dormant alfalfa fields. Beehives continue to be placed in almond orchards in preparation for the upcoming bloom season. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. California is rapidly plunging back into drought with severe conditions now existing in Santa Barbara, Ventura, and Los Angeles counties, home to one-fourth of the state's population. That's according to a new National Drought Monitor study released last week. It also shows 44% of the state is now considered to be in a moderate drought. It's a dramatic jump from just the week before when the figure was 13%. Lack of rain this winter is the culprit, and the vital snowpack is less than one-third of normal for this date. We are now in the final stretch of the western water accumulation season. As between now and April 1st, western mountain ranges must receive enough snowpack to run off into reservoirs during the spring and summer months and provide needed H2O supplies for irrigators and municipalities. Yet USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says initial concerns raised at the beginning of January about snowpack totals have grown more worrisome based on current measurements. Snowpack and runoff prospects are rather abysmal at this point and barring a late season miracle we are going to be facing some extremely low runoff potential for pretty much everything stretching from Oregon and California eastward to Colorado and New Mexico. 
Rippy adds that the culprit is the La Nina weather pattern, still holding strong across the continental U.S. One example of its impacts on western snowpack levels can be found in the end of January totals for the Sierra Nevada mountain chain, the primary source for water for most California reservoirs. The Sierra Nevada contains just under five inches of liquid equivalent. That is less than one-third of average for this time of year, and that is also less than one-sixth of average if we were not to accumulate any more between now and April 1st. In fact, the only real bright spots in terms of snowpack accumulations are found in the northern tier of the region. Looking pretty good right now are Montana and Wyoming, and to a lesser degree, Washington and Idaho, with the best snowpack in the northern and eastern parts of those two states. La Nina is expected to persist between now through the start of April giving little opportunity for much-needed precipitation and snowpack accumulation, especially in the southern two-thirds of the West. And according to Brad Rippey, We are looking at drought returning to the vast majority of the West following one year of abundant precipitation. Even though reservoirs did fill last spring and summer with the runoff from the bounty of 2016-17, we are not expecting much runoff across the southern two-thirds of the West in 2018. So we'll see hydrological issues returning across many parts of the West unless something happens between now and the end of March. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A University of California study blaming fertilizer and agriculture for almost half of the smog-forming emissions in the Central Valley is being called a terrible exaggeration of what is actually going on by one Valley agricultural leader. In the Western Farm Press, they cite the report, which was released January 31st by UC Davis. It says up to 41% of smog-forming nitrogen oxide emissions come from Central Valley Agricultural's use of fertilizer. The report authors call this a largely overlooked source of air pollution, stating that new policies need to be enacted because of these findings. Roger Isom, he's the president of the Fresno-based Western Agricultural Processors Association, criticized the report, saying the study is based on modeling and airborne measurements, not actual measurements at the soil due to fertilizer applications. This is not a complaint, but government can sometimes be strange in how it works. Laws that were passed years ago could have been quite appropriate at the time and still may be. But as issues come up, things and laws can change and you can get some rather complex situations. Case in point, both the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug Administration have been given by Congress jobs to do in the pursuit of safe food. Both do food safety inspections, but that's where it gets interesting. The Secretary of Agriculture, USDA, you know, Sonny Perdue, was explaining some of this the other day to a group of the White House. So, Okay, he, he says first. USDA is responsible for meat inspection. Including a pork chop. Yeah. Pork chop. And also. Uh -huh, and also. Beef. It's what's for dinner. Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. And sausage and such. But it gets more complicated for things like. Fried food sandwiches. Fried food sandwiches. So the agriculture secretary says in that case. We inspect the wieners. Some people don't think they are, but we inspect the wieners. But then. You put them in a bun. And the Frankfurter or wiener becomes a packaged food, perhaps, and it's called a horse. Guess whose responsibility it is? Called a hot dog. FDA. <laughs> and here is another one. I am a pizza. I am a pizza. 
with extra cheese. Yes, frozen pizza, extra cheese. It's the Food and Drug Administration's job to inspect those. However, I am a pizza. Uh, here we go again, yeah. Pepperoni. Ah, pepperoni. Yes, you put that or sausage on there, and the law has the Agriculture Department inspecting that product. Likewise, and uh, here's one really interesting one. Sandwiches are beautiful. Sandwiches are fine. All right, let's say you buy an open-faced sandwich. If the ratio of meat to bread and other ingredients is over 50%, the Agriculture Department has jurisdiction. Closed sandwiches, two slices of bread, FDA's bailiwick, because the meat contents less than 50% of the ingredients. Whoa, yeah, and those are just a few examples. So as Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue says... We're all in the food safety business, but... Uh, Congress has divided and bifurcated many of those responsibilities, and it takes leaders who are willing to work together, not in a possessive kind of way, but in a cooperative way, say, how do we get the food safety job done, whether it's, you know, black and white, your responsibility, our responsibility? How do we work side by side? This agreement today is an important step uh, in that effort. FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb shared the stage with the Ag Secretary, both signing an agreement to collaborate. It doesn't change all the congressionally mandated divisions of labor, but they said it will make food safety inspections and procedures more efficient, which will make our food supply even safer. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. We are at the Calusa Farm Show talking to Mike Smith of Seton Farms. They grow pistachios, California pistachios. Mike, good to see you again. How are the pistachios looking in 2018? 2018 looks pretty strong for us. It uh, came off of a great big year in 2016 where the entire crop was sold. And 2017 had a better than average uh, off year. And we're looking into 2018 to be an on year again. And and have great production. Uh, we are a little shy on chill hours this year and a little shy on water, but but the crop itself looks pretty darn good. Chill hours up in this area running about the same or a little behind from last year. Last year wasn't so great, but like you say, you're coming off and off here, so barring any sort of uh, pest issues, it could be a good year for pistachios. Absolutely, we're looking forward to it. The markets are all strong. The trees are all in great shape. They've had a little rest over the winter. We hope for a little more rain and a little more chill, but you know, all, all in all, everybody's getting their field work done. Uh, any growers out there that haven't heard anything about orchard sanitation should probably uh, uh, get in contact with their processor. Orchard sanitation is gonna be a big key. But other than that, we are, uh, we're excited about 2018 and beyond. All right, you're hinting at one of the bigger problems in pistachios, the navel orange worm. How did that affect the crop in the last couple of years? Navel orange worm has been our number one concern. We are focusing many, many more efforts to control navel orange worm. Uh, orchard sanitation being the, the first line of defense this time of the year. The next line of defense obviously is mating disruption puffers that growers can hang in their trees during the growing season. And then we encourage all of our growers to harvest on the early side just to uh, keep the worm from going full circle. Are the big varieties still Kerman and Peters? Well, Kerman and Peters is obviously the largest variety out there, but there are some new varieties, Lost Hills, Golden Hills. They are really coming on strong with two new uh, male varieties, the Randy and the Peters, or excuse me, the Randy and the Tahone variety. And uh, we are seeing a huge, huge increase in the plantings of the two new varieties. That's for sure. Where is all this new acreage going in primarily in the state? 
goes in all over the state. We come from as far north as Las Molinas all the way down to Wheeler Ridge. We go out to Cuyama, Paso Robles. We're out uh, in the desert at Barstow area. It's just uh, a huge influx of planting, and, and we're just seeing uh, uh, the quality of our growers and the quality of our product rise every year. Is there another drought looming? We don't really know yet, but water always a concern, especially in orchards. Yes, it is a big concern, and and water is uh, is going to be a key topic here. We've gone through a really long dry spell after the blessings we had last year in uh, in in rainfall. So, thankfully, we have storage to rely upon this year, and hopefully, we build more storage in the future, so we have fewer headaches like this. But you're absolutely right; we need more water. Tell us about some of the products that Sutton Farms produces because you guys have all sorts of very tasty products made with pistachios. Sutton is uh, the innovative leader in the pistachio industry for sure. We have our chocolate-covered pistachios, our flavored pistachios. We have uh, one of our banner products is our pistachio chewy bite, which we have a blueberry coconut, and we have the original cranberry pistachio chewy bar, which are put together with a little bit of agave syrup and and served in a bar form and just a very very innovative company when it comes to being on the forefront are those products mainly for the domestic market or are they being exported as well as the nuts themselves we export to 55 countries around the world so uh, about 50 percent of our crop is is sold in the united states north america the balance is sold everywhere else in the world it's exciting Pistachios up and coming here in California. Mike Smith, Setton Farms. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Of all the apple-producing states in the U.S., California ranks sixth. However, in California, it's number 56 in total value. Still, apples play a big part in California's agricultural market. California is the second largest exporter of apples, going to 27 countries. And three of the five most popular apples eaten in the United States are grown right here in California. Fuji, Gala, and Granny Smith. But there's an interloper on the horizon. It's the Honeycrisp apple, primarily grown in the Pacific Northwest. But the Honeycrisp is having some issues. With more is the USDA's Rod Bain. It's becoming one of the more popular apple varieties in produce aisles over the last decade or so. Honeycrisp. But it costs more relative to other types of apples, according to Rich Marini of Penn State University Extension, due to the difficulty involved in growing Honeycrisp. That includes a condition more susceptible in Honeycrisp than in other varieties. Bitter pit. When you pick the fruit, it looks good. You put it in cold storage for a couple of months. When you take it out, it looks good. You put it on your kitchen table at room temperature for a few days, and you start to see these sunken areas in the fruit. They're kind of blackish-brown in color, and when you peel it, you get this brown, corky tissue just under the skin. Marini says cut away the bitter pit impacted areas and the apple is safe to eat. However, bitter pit can develop in Honeycrisp on store shelves, making them unsellable. So Marini and colleagues are developing new models to better predict bitter pit, including the ratio of nitrogen to calcium in the peel and tree shoot length. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt says the EPA is moving ahead with this two-step process of repealing and replacing 
facing the waters of the U.S. rule. With respect to WOTUS, we have a withdrawal proposal that's out in the marketplace that will deal with that 2015 rule to provide certainty. And then we have a step two process that's ongoing to replace a substitute definition with what the textual and the statute and case law says is waters of the United States. His comments came in testimony to the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works. And we're not deregulating in the traditional sense. We are providing regulatory certainty because there are steps being taken to provide a substitute, a replacement for WOTUS. He gave the senators a sense of how the issue would play out this year. So we are working through that process. I anticipate that proposal, Senator, coming out sometime in April, May of this year, the proposed substitute, then hopefully finalizing that by the end of 2018. The U.S. Supreme Court recently held that district courts have jurisdiction to consider challenges made to WOTUS. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Environmental Protection Agency's action to extend the delay of application for the 2015 Waters of the U.S. rule is a welcome relief to farmers and ranchers, according to the American Farm Bureau Federation. AFBF Senior Director of Regulatory Relations Don Parrish says the move by the EPA is a step forward on water regulation. we got to hand it to this administration for doing what they need to do to make sure that not just farmers and ranchers, but everyone that uses the landscape can operate with certainty, even if they operate in multiple states. And this revision to the 2015 rule to extend the applicability date is a step in the right direction. The extension was needed following a Supreme Court decision defining jurisdiction of the rule to federal district courts, not federal appeals courts, where a nationwide hold on WOTUS was placed. The Supreme Court action nullified the lower court delay. So this administration scrambled to try to make sure that the 2015 rule never went into effect. And we had more than one court say that this rule was illegal. They wouldn't have put a nationwide stay on it otherwise. So the last thing we want is to see this rule go into effect. He says the latest EPA action allows for a proper evaluation and adjustments to the rule before implementation. We can all rest assured that whenever something does go into effect, it's going to be protective of the environment, it's going to be protective of business, and hopefully it's going to have the common sense underpinnings that farmers expect from regulations so that we can know when we walk out on our property what is regulated and how to comply with the law. Michael Clements, Washington. Because periodic droughts will always be a part of life in California, the UC California Institute for Water Resources has produced a series of reports to maintain drought awareness and planning even in years when water is more abundant. How about water and alfalfa? Canon Michaels of Bowles Farming in Los Banos and Cooperative Extension Specialist Dan Putnam explain some of the strategies for alfalfa crops during drought. Alfalfa is the second most water-intensive crop in California, but it is a highly resilient crop during drought periods and has a high level of water use efficiency. My name is Canon Michael and I am the president of Bowles Farming Company, which is my family's farming operation here in the Central Valley of uh, California. I'm actually the sixth generation of my family to farm here in the Central Valley. My great-great-great-grandfather came here in the 1850s and uh, we've been farming here ever since. Like all other California farms, the recent drought significantly impacted Canon's farm. But uh, we lost, you know, about a third of the production of what this farm could have done, which was difficult. It eliminated a lot of labor that, that we had. You know, a lot of our people had to go home. It was, it was a big loss for, for our area. It was a big loss for the state. And, uh, you know, we're, we're glad to have a better water year this year. And hopefully going forward, we can have a more stable water supply. 
So we're in the middle of an alfalfa field here. Uh, alfalfa is one of the, the many uh, crops that we grow. And there's a lot of misunderstandings, I think, about alfalfa as a crop. Uh, it, it does take water to grow it, just as with anything, but we get multiple harvests of it every year. So for the water that we actually apply, we get an awful lot of biomass uh, from every cutting. Alfalfa is a highly resilient crop during drought periods. Part of it is due to its deep root structure that can tap into groundwater when needed. Because of this root structure and long growing period, it doesn't have to be watered regularly compared to other crops like tomatoes. It actually was a very valuable crop for us to have in terms of being able to have flexibility. We were able to stretch the alfalfa crops a little bit further or sometimes not water them for more than 60, 70 days. So being able to have that flexibility helped us manage our water that we did have available so that we could be more flexible and move it around to different crops at different times. University of California Cooperative Extension Specialist Dan Putnam consulted with Canon and shared his expertise on irrigation techniques for alfalfa. Okay, so alfalfa is a crop that, that's actually, I would call it the, almost the best crop you can have in a, in a drought. And, and so this is one of the things that we've been researching really for the last 10 or 15 years at the University of California. We have data from the Central Valley, from the Intermountain area, the low deserts of California that shows that partial season irrigations are successful. It, it lowers the yields, but it also lowers the water footprint so that farmer is able to get partial season uh, returns during a drought period where the water is short. So this is, this is one of the reasons we think that alfalfa is actually one of those crops that uh, is pretty resilient during the drought. Bulls Farming here has done a lot of really innovative things. They've uh, looked at drip irrigation, they've looked at different methods of applying water so that it can be more judiciously uh, applied. Cannon uses flood irrigation on his alfalfa fields, but is converting them to drip irrigation for better control and to help produce higher yields. So here we have one of our main irrigation canals. It's bringing uh, the water uh, to us. Uh, Traditionally, we'd been a flood irrigated farm where, uh, where most of this water would have been dispersed by a flood irrigation, which would be siphon pipes and sort of manual, a lot of manual labor. Uh, we've transitioned over the past few years to, uh, to install quite a bit of uh, drip irrigation. What you see here to, the, to this side is uh, the filter stations, and then uh, we've got uh, tanks there that can handle different types of, of nutrient product, fertilizers, and, and other things that can help us uh, grow the crop. Been a very uh, positive story for us and uh, helped us grow better crops and with a lot less water. The proceeding was a production of University of California Television. More information online at uctv.tv. As we just heard, Dr. Dan Putnam of UC Cooperative Extension maintains that alfalfa could be an excellent crop to grow in a drought. So if as you're driving down the highway and you look at those fields and you're saying, it's just grass and they're flooding those fields, what a waste of water. Well, first of all, alfalfa isn't grass, it's a dicot. And second of all, you'd be surprised at the bang for the buck that alfalfa gives for the water it uses and how little water it actually takes. We're talking with Dan Putnam. Dr. Dan Putnam is with the University of California Extension. He is their alfalfa and forage specialist based at Davis. And uh, Dan, I, I guess it really is the, the fact that people see that flood irrigation on alfalfa fields and, and wonder, well, why why are we growing this? Well, um, you know, alfalfa is a crop that's grown primarily for uh, protein production, and, and most of it goes uh, for uh, dairy production in California, and um, uh, some percentage goes for um, uh, horses, 
but primarily it's for dairy uh, production. So if you're having yogurt or cheese um, on your uh, pizza, um, that's that's probably originating from alfalfa. It's, it produces more protein really than any other crop uh, that we know of uh, per acre. And so um, it's a crop that, that uh, does contribute very much to our food system. Um, and a lot of people don't don't always recognize that. Exactly. If people like ice cream or horseback riding, they should be a fan of alfalfa. I would think so, yes. Now, it's amazing in the research you've done about alfalfa is basically how tolerant it is of drought, which a lot of people don't realize. Well, you know, it's been um, something that we've been working on for the last 10 or 15 years, uh, what we call deficit irrigation of alfalfa. So uh, it is true that alfalfa, if you irrigate it fully for the entire year, does use uh, probably an average of about four to four and a half acre feet per year in California. But um, we've found out, and I think a lot of growers have found out, that um, that alfalfa produces, it does something uh, for farmers, which is a lot more high degree of flexibility during a drought period. So we have both research data and on-farm data that shows that um, that one can irrigate alfalfa partially during the year and still obtain fairly reasonable yields, not full yields, but but reasonable yields. Um, and uh, that's because it's a crop that's cut anywhere from four to uh, ten times per year. So sometimes growers, when they're short of water, they can sacrifice the later cuttings of the year and um, and be able to survive a, a drought period like this. And I would think with the first cutting of the year, little irrigation is necessary because it's surviving on winter water, growing, thriving with winter water. Yeah, that's correct. And, and you know, in the northern part of California, where we're um, hopefully we'll get a, a full recharge of rainwater this year, and, and some years we do and some years we don't, um, but... Um, if growers are able to irrigate that crop early uh, or f- make sure that they start with a full profile, they can usually go uh, all the way through um, uh, June or July with moderate irrigation levels and then cut off irrigations at that point um, when still obtained fairly high levels. We have some research data uh, that shows that summer cutoffs on July 1st resulted of, of really it's a 50% cut in, in the irrigation water uh, for the season, but we got 80% of full yields during the uh, 2015 year. And we had another treatment where we cut it off at 25% uh, reduction in full water use. So it's a 75% of full water use. And the yields were about 90 to 95% of, of, of full yield. So, um, so this is a, a crop that offers flexibility in, in a drought period, which we don't often see with many of our other crops where you really, if you're, if you're going to produce those crops, you're going to have to irrigate them fully in order to obtain um, any yield whatsoever. Um, and so now there's some other crops that this can be done with, uh, but, but alfalfa is particularly uh, well suited to this. And that's partly because it, it does survive, um, you know, several months of, of dry conditions. You know, it came from, alfalfa came from an area of the world where summer droughts were, were the common thing. And, um, and so it, it, is, it is a crop that can survive for two, three months of, of zero uh, irrigation water and come back, uh, the, you know, after being recharged in the fall and the winter and yield something, uh, yield something the following year. So in most cases, the stand has survived 
uh, these kinds of deficit irrigation strategies and come back to yield normally the following year. What are the origins of alfalfa? Where did it come from? Well, it came from the uh, Near East, uh, Turkey, the Caucasus regions of the uh, of the Near East. Um, it was, you know, it's one of the oldest co- cultivated crops in the world, uh, going back to really several thousand years BC, where it was pretty important to the uh, early civilizations for both horses and military power, as well as for cows and for milk production in the Mediterranean region of uh, the Roman Empire and the Greek empires and the Mesopotamian empires, uh, Persians, uh, all all used uh, uh, alfalfa pretty widely for, uh, particularly for uh, horses, because, uh, you know, horses were a source of power for those, uh, um, uh, for those civilizations. How many cuttings in Northern California can a farmer expect with alfalfa? Well, we usually typically around the woodland um, uh, Sacramento area uh, or in the Sacramento Valley, we get about six to seven cuttings per year. As you go further south uh, in the San Joaquin Valley, you can uh, usually typically more closer to eight uh, and even sometimes nine cuttings. Uh, In the Imperial Valley, it's usually eight to ten cuttings of alfalfa. And so um, now in the northern part of uh, California, that is in the Intermountain area, we're typically on a three to four cut system there because they have cold winters and the crop goes completely dormant in the wintertime in the Intermountain area. How does alfalfa respond to a drought? Does it come back? Uh, Yes, we've we've seen both experimental evidence and on-farm evidence that uh, growers who are able to uh, partially irrigate their crop during the year, um, and and on good soils with you know reasonable uh, water holding capacity, that those crops will hold in there um, and come back and yield normally the next year. We had a, a research trial at the Westside Field Station in Fresno County, uh, which um, uh, we um, uh, stopped irrigating in 2013 and 2014, and only irrigated partially in 2015, and the crop. Strangely enough, it's still there, uh, and we, you know, it was sort of surprised us a little bit because we really tried hard to abuse it, and and uh, uh, it's a tough it's a tough crop when it's well established like that, and it's able it's pretty resilient during these these drought periods. It also has a rather high tolerance to salt, doesn't it? That's another thing that we've been working on at um, at, at the University of California, and this year we put. Uh, high salinity waters of somewhere between EC of about uh, 8, electric, electrical conductivity between about 8 and 10, and, um, and the crop is, is a little bit, is somewhat lower yielding under those conditions, but it, it seems to survive, and, uh, and we're, we're still measuring the effects of salinity on the crop, and I'd say that, yes, it's a pretty saline uh, after establishment. I have to... Uh, put that caveat in, in there is that after it's well established um, it actually is pretty tough and and resilient under under saline water conditions would alfalfa be a good candidate for those municipalities that are recycling their water um, yes actually and it's been used that way actually pretty commonly in uh, Kern County and Los Angeles County um, have have used alfalfa for that purpose and the reason for that is that it it's um, it has very high nitrogen uptake levels, and so if, if municipalities are concerned, which I think all, all of them are concerned about uh, the potential for nitrate contamination of groundwater, 
if you have a deep-rooted crop like alfalfa, um, it's important to um, you know to apply it uh, to match the crop uptake levels. But the fact is, we can we take up somewhere between you know 350 and six or 700 pounds of nitrogen per year in an alfalfa crop, and and maybe even up to a thousand pounds per year, depending upon how high the yields are in the certain area. But it's um, you know it's a crop that can take up very high. Um, nitrate um, uh, waters, and and because it does utilize waters, um, you know, throughout the summer, uh, it can be used that way, and it has been used that way in in many uh, regions. Probably the main reason why it is so drought tolerant and uh, can thrive is the fact that it has very deep roots. Just how deep are roots of alfalfa? Well, you know, I've 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 read uh, some some reports of roots going down to 25 feet. I'd, I'd say it would be pretty unusual, but pretty commonly we'll see we'll see alfalfa roots down eight eight feet uh, into the ground. Um, it's uh, got a deep tap root that uh, that reaches down much further than most of our uh, annual crops, and uh, is able to extract moisture. And it's part of the reason that I think it it, it does so well under um, deficit irrigation or drought conditions um, and is able to pull water from from uh, depths. Now, the folks in Australia has, have actually used um, alfalfa to uh, draw down their what they call the, the saline sumps that they have in some areas of, uh, of Australia because it sort of helps to pull that water uh, out, of the, out of the system. Alfalfa, it just might be the best crop to have in a drought. You can read more about uh, Dan Putnam's research uh, on his blog page at Alfalfa and Forage News. Just do a search for Daniel Putnam and the phrase why alfalfa is the best crop to have in a drought for more details about that. Dr. Dan Putnam, University of California Extension Alfalfa and Forage Specialist in Davis. Thanks for your time today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.